final building with Queen and Danny, Lady, and the Wizard. No Wizard. Because he looks like a lizard. Who? Steve, he's so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 20. Oof. It's a nice round number. And we've got Liz Blatchford back with us, superstar athlete and amazing coach. Um, I've ran through some of Liz's achievements last episode when she gave us a nice preview of what was going to go down in Kona. Uh, I won't go through, through it all again, but Liz is probably the most qualified, well, definitely the most qualified out of all, our, all of us to talk about Kona, given the two podium finishes she had there. Welcome back, Liz. Uh, how was uh watching did you watch the event or did you watch the highlights and run yeah. me through does it does it ever do you do you get like a bit itchy feet like oh i miss it or is it like oh geez i'm glad i'm not there <laughs> um that time has passed now five years since i did my last one um there was probably a little bit of that in the first few years but now it's just like Oh my goodness, running a marathon in that heat after that bike. No, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, yeah no, that time's gone. I watched a bit of it um in and out, just as you guys know, Glenn was over there with you, Clint. And um, so yeah, just with the kids and kids' activities and whatnot. Yeah, so we're I was checking in and out on my phone as I was doing normal Sunday morning activities. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit the same in and out, because otherwise your whole day could disappear and there are, you know especially with the way it is, you know, the limitations with the coverage, which is just the nature of that, that event. Um, you can check in every 10 or 15 minutes, a bit like test, test cricket and just sort of, you know, you know, when something exciting is going to happen, you can jump back on, oh, in about 20 minutes, they're going to be hitting transition. I'll jump back on then. Clint was over there. Clint, give us your thoughts on conditions over there. Um, very fast times. What are you, what are your thoughts on the day given it you were was, there in person mate it was um it was a really warm day but i mean a lot of people have asked me about this since i got home and it's like you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't if you get wind it's not as hot but if you don't get any wind on the race day it's it's very warm and even in town it was really still until probably later in the day there was a, a little bit of wind through town but it was um yeah i, I was there last year I've been there the last few years and it was definitely the hottest it's been. Um, it was more of a, I think we've discussed it previously, it kind of turns it into a race of genetics a little bit as well as, um, you know, just the ability because it was so warm. Um, swim seemed a little slow. Um, obviously, Lucy did what Lucy does. And if you guys want to go back and listen to previous episodes where we picked winners, um I think I might've got that one right. So um, yeah, she just did what she got away from like the first couple of meters and then it was um, go to woe for her, but the the rest of them all seemed to race pretty quickly, but it was, yeah, it was, it was really hot, very still. But I, I think that regardless every year, it's like, how were the conditions? It was still really hard because if it's not windy, it's hot. So. Yeah. And from your perspective, Liz, some standout, I mean, we're going to talk through the podiums anyway, but yeah, some standout performances. What, what do you, what were your big takeaways from the race from, from in terms of the, the best performances of the day, obviously, including Lucy. Yeah. I mean, Lucy, we did, as you said, Clint, we did talk about, you know, it's Lucy's time. She's had the four second places and to get up the way she did, but to do it, you know, and not be near anyone all day and do it in a record time is just, yeah, very incredible and a really hard way to do the race. Um, just knowing you've got Anne Hag running you down, <laughs> um, yeah. mental integrity to just hold it together, stick to what you know and hang tough. So, yeah, it's just not only did she win, but she did it in just incredible style. So It must be like for her to turn at RV and see, obviously Taylor Nib was a, few minutes behind but then there was just a pack of like basically the rest of the firepower in the race they were just all there working together to be able mm. to just see that and then go well I just keep doing what I do and, yeah. and not worry about that was um incredibly impressive because that would have to play into your mind that 
you know that they're they're all there they're all pushing each other and you're just out there solo getting it done um it, yeah it made it very very impressive and she rode in the end i think she she kept that gap the whole way to town and people kind of blew out one by one but it was so impressive yeah yeah that mentality of like me versus the pack there's yeah, yeah some real fortitude yeah. there for yeah. sure but i mean as lucy knows this is how she races and with all those past experiences behind her, just having that confidence that that is how she gets things done. So, um, yeah, I guess she drew on every experience before her and this time it was enough. And and then she ran sub three hours too this year too. So, And yeah. she, she looked, I mean, everyone, not very many people look impressive early in the run in Hawaii. Like you obviously warm into it, but she did look like she was really battling early on. And then turns out, I don't know if any of you guys saw the photo of her leg post-race, but the Achilles issue that she had pre-race, it was just bruising the whole way up the back of her leg. And from kilometre one, she said it was excruciating. Mm-hmm. And so to have that in your brain, have Anne running you down, having yeah. you know all of that to get it done is absolutely amazing. For sure. I- I think um, before we move on from Lucy, I, f- I feel like the um, having a partner who's really dedicated to your racing is such a huge advantage. I know we touch on it a fair bit, but uh, it seemed like for a lot of your career, Liz, you had Glenn very much in your corner. Mm. Um, Lucy seems to have that set up with her husband, Reese, and it seems to be working really well. And it, And it is a common theme when you look through the, especially not just the one-off champions, but the champions that stick around for a while. I th- yeah, it looks like now, over the over the last few years, it really seems like nearly all the big names in the sport, you know, a lot of them early on would have to do it on their own, but now it seems like they all have a team around them. And not only like, you know, their, their partner or whatever it is, but like the, the physios. I think Lucy had a chef with her as well. She had a full-time physio there, had her husband running around after her. that really like the level of professionalism from everyone seems to have really really stepped up for sure I can attest to that like I remember throughout my racing having Glenn and really feeling a lot of the time that you know he was just this massive sort of attribute and this asset that like helped me perform helped me train harder each day travel was always simpler I had a (laughs) had a bag handler (laughs) (laughs) bike packer all of the things and it just um, but also going back to that longevity and the enjoyment factor and, you know, the mental side of sport is like elite sport can be really, really lonely, um, but to do it with a partner or with a whole team, um, yeah, just makes it a lot more sort of able to endure it for a lot longer. And, you know, as we all know, with time and sport things, you progress far more, far further. So yeah. in your time when you're in Hawaii, Liz, with BMC, did they just basically, they looked after everything in terms of bike bike issues, bike builds, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So the BMC team was fantastic. Early on, the first few years were insane. Every race I went, went to, they would send a mechanic. So I'd just turn up sometimes with my bike, just filthy, and <laughs> hand it over to the mechanic. They'd new chain, new this, new that, whatever needed doing. Um, I just sort of knew it was taken care of. Um, like as the budget changed a little bit in later years, it was just Kona, but even in Kona, like, and they're all up to date with the most recent advice on what tires and, um, you know, they, the conditions on any given course, they'd be able to give us really good advice. And the BMC mechanic was also working with the cycling teams too. So you knew his name was Stefano, um, this awesome Italian guy. So yeah, you just knew you had the best advice behind you and it was very, very helpful. <laughs> Touching on that with the the best advice, that was one thing I did notice this year was it really seems like it, that the females are lifting the game in terms of aerodynamics. Really like guys have always been obsessed with finding that 1%, like the right tyre, the right material to wear, the right helmet or perfect positions and all that kind of stuff but the ladies really seem like they now realize that those little things are actually huge things everyone looks oh, the majority of them look really good on their bikes you know very good setup so um it's really good to see well i would argue it's always been not so much gender-based clint but more um nation-based i think the germans have always really driven that 
Um, and it's just the fact now that we've got some really strong German women as well. Um, Lucy's obviously very dialed in as well. There were a few times over the years where I felt like she was changing her position a fair bit between races and now she looks perfect. Um, great. yeah, but yeah, I, I think it's more, um, the, the Europeans in particular, Germany seem to be setting the standard just like Jan did, just like Sebi did. And then everyone's like, Oh man, I've got to do that. Or I'm not even in the game. And, and I think the ladies that that's now it's got to that point where it's that critical mass of enough women are doing it, that if you're not doing it, you're not in the race. Um, yeah, for sure. so, I mean, I think, um, speaking about like Anne Hogg, I hope I'm saying Borg right. Haug, how do you, is that how you say it, Liz? Yeah. Just like another amazing race over there. Um, just such an impressive run. I love the way she just seems to not be phased about what's happening in the race. She just sticks to her game plan. I'm a huge fan of her coach, obviously. Just so many results in Kona now. Coaching Lucy, coaching Anne, coaching Jan. Um, obviously knows how to get results over there. But the thing, I always get a little bit skeptical sometimes because sometimes a really good coach can attract good athletes. So I'm more impressed with Dan's result with Anne than I am with Dan's result with Lucy because Lucy was already on her way to being a bit of a superstar. But when you look at how long Dan and, and Anne have worked together, it's yeah. like 20 years of development and through different styles of triathlon. And for me, that just shows what a good coach he is to not only to keep someone trusting him for that length of time and even to keep Lucy trusting him when she had a stress fracture. That's half the battle as a coach is to keep that trust in place because you're going to hit some really bad, bad times. You're going to push things a little bit too far and then have to readjust. And so I just think <laughs> for my mind, it was almost performance of the day from him out of anyone on, on the race day. Yeah. And I remember reading something race week um, from him, saying that Anne hasn't reached her potential on the running Kona and sure enough then she comes out and runs five minutes quicker than she'd ever run and three minutes or two three minutes quicker than anyone else had ever run um but yeah like you say 18 or so years working together just knows us so well knows exactly how to get the best out of Anne and as you say over every distance <laughs> yeah is and Laura, she, sorry, is she um she's been around a fair while now in terms of like the Ironman and she's she is getting a little older. Has she made any statements in terms of if if she wants to go back there? And because that was probably like we would say that's her best performance there, and to be second is is amazing. Like, has she said that's it, or she's still hungry, or does anyone know? I do not know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wonder because it was such a like a well rounded day, and to be you know, three minutes behind it, it's, it's great, but it's still, um, yeah, I just wondered if it's kind of, as you guys probably know, sometimes you finish there and it's like, that's it. I'm done with that place. Um, I wondered if she had that, that moment or if she still has that proper hunger to go back there and, and lower the bar. I'm not yeah. sure if she's announced anything. Um, I'm not super up to date with social medias or what, and that sort of stuff, but I know like Glenn worked with her a bit in Kona and yeah, well, there was a bit of back and forth. How's Anne and whatnot? Because we know each other from ITU racing before even we crossed over in Ironman. Um, and there was just some comments and, you know, whether it's public or not, just that, yeah, she's close to being wanting to be done, but close, you know, some people it can mean two, three more years. So, um, yeah, she's still, what, kicking goals and doing PBs and sure. coming second. So <laughs> who so knows? Speaking of age, Laura Phillip, um, fairly young, you know, to get third place and just such a well-rounded race, I feel like she's still, you know, she's on that trajectory to keep going up to second and first. So um, amazing race from her. Taylor Nib, we predicted that it would be, you know, probably a very strong, I don't know, 90% of the race and then maybe falling a bit short. And that was that was sort of where it was. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's only because of her pedigree you can say that it was falling slightly short to finish fourth place and not because we just, it's just so obvious how good she's going to, going to get. Um, but that looked like a really gutsy performance. She was completely spent at the finish line. Uh, and I think when you combine with her level of talent and then you watch how deep she was able to go, that's what makes me look at an athlete and go, they're going to probably win this race one day or very likely to win this race because they got both things, you know, on their side. Um, yeah. Danny, do you, sorry, Liz, go on. 
Oh, just some of the coverage of Taylor, just having so oh. much fun out there, chatting the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, she went deep, but like there's just a, not saying Taylor's unprofessional, but as we all know, she'd only given this short period of dedication to Kona. She's gone and run 305, I think. And yeah, like you say, there's just a lot more to come from Taylor. And yeah. Well, we spoke about it in the, in the preview episode and she was, her bike position still isn't going to like, she can, she can work on that. She had bottles flying off her bike left, right and center. Like I think before the race, we said like, you need, she needs to be working on her nutrition. Well, I think she got straight on the bike and both the bottles ejected out the back because she just was set up so terribly. And then every time you looked at the coverage, she was chatting to either the motorbike or people on the side of the course. And turns out like for the first hour or two, everyone she went past, she was just telling them that she'd lost her nutrition. Like, and not, not like asking for help, just, just, having a chat with them saying I lost my nutrition and so she's operating at about 75 percent of what she could race you know (laughs) her two-hour efforts so there was um yeah she was just riding along and we're watching the coverage at one point she had a bottle because she'd shot so many bottles she had a bottle sitting in her mouth like just holding it there for probably like a few minutes just clearly not putting out as much effort as she need like it was a as you say 75 percent effort and um if she just goes and they just iron out a few of those little creases yeah. um, and does a couple more, more Ironmans, it's going to be, um, it's going to be very impressive what she can do. And it, it's, you know, everyone knows I'm a huge fan of Trek and how professional that that team is. But the one thing that I think is lacking is that there's not a real push to get error testing done and positions dialed. It's sort of left up to the athlete, but I look at it as if I was, in in the trek department i'd be like that if we're going to spend this much money we also know that we're getting every single watt out of taylor nib on the course and i think i do i I feel like that's that's the only real hole in the game everyone wants to be with trek but it's sort of then left up to athletes and if you're like me and think you know everything when you don't you don't i didn't i didn't optimize my, my position for lots of years and um and so, yeah, I think there'll be some good aero testers in Australia soon, Clint. So maybe we can, uh, Trek, if you're listening, here's well, t- we we'll, know, te- we we'll test Taylor. the Australian. <laughs> yeah, we know Taylor will be listening. So Taylor, just reach out. You know, yeah. something out. Danny, your thoughts on just sort of some standout performances that I guess people, biggest improvers, people that um, wouldn't necessarily have seen a lot on the coverage, but you you know and have looked into just making big gains from years before or even on their debut? Um, I'm, to be honest, it looks, when you look at the top 10, it looks like all the the big heavy hitters that a lot of people probably predicted are there. Um, and then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you, the fallout from your, um, uh, your preview show, I don't know, did anyone predict, were there any surprises in the top 10 from, from your predictions at all? I don't oh, think anyone talked about Sky. So. Yeah. So Sky's had a great race, but, you know, she's also pretty proven over Ironman. Um, so she's had a good race, but not a huge surprise. I think um, Kat Matthews, obviously having a bad day. That was one that, like, was surprising. Um, Do we know what like, happened with her? She just, I, I read a post afterwards and she just said that, you know, early in the bike she knew that things weren't right and, um, and, and after a couple of hours of just the light switch went off and it, w- it was done. And I mean, as Reedy and Lizard know, especially that like, I think Sebi said it best, it's a fine line between fit and effed. Um, <laughs> and maybe that was the case, you know, um, I, I don't know what it was, but yeah, the light switch went out and, and the day was done and there's no point groveling in the, the heat if there's another, um, another race to be had down the track. Mm. I, I was, um, sorry, go Dean. Uh, I guess back to your question, Reedy, um, I guess what stands out to me more so below the top 10 is there's some good Australian performances, Hannah Berry, Penny Slater, even Radka as well. And I think Penny, did she get a penalty on the bike as well? I think she got she... another penalty, yeah. And it was interesting on off air last time we recorded, we, I, th- I said, I think you're going to go 10 places better. Was that right, Clint? Something yeah. like that. And she yeah, almost did exactly that. 10 places better. Yeah. Um, because I think you can get make those sort of gains. That's a realistic gain, you know, when every time you go back to Kona for someone 
you know, who's sort of still learning the Ironman game. And she really, I thought she nailed it. I like that we've claimed Hannah Berry as an Australian. <laughs> um, she had a great race. <laughs> and I think not the easiest run into it. It seems like a bit of a bit, I'm a bit like you, Liz. I don't follow everyone on social media as much, but it seemed like I think there was a few injuries and things throughout the year and then um, yeah. getting back on top of things and, and coming out with a strong, strong race. So her longest yeah. run before that race was 28 Ks. And it was on the island, so it might have been ten or twelve days before, because she'd had a, a stress injury, and it was kind of, um, yeah. So it was certainly it wasn't the best run, in, like an ideal prep, but yeah, it was a great day out. And I think they they played it very smart. A lot of those ladies, it was kind of they swim with the pack, they ride with the pack, and then they execute the run as well as as they can, which is mm. which is a a good way to get the day done. Uh, another one I mention would be Beck Clark. She had a good day, Kiwi. Yeah. Um, I, I think it also, it's very surprising how between say 10 to 20, they were all like really solid days. And if you got those times and put them back to previous years, they'd be a lot further up. Um, I don't know how much the dynamics of the day changed with, because um, like previously when we spoke about it, we were hoping that they actually raced. And it really did feel like the bike was a bit more dynamic and they, um, yeah, it was good. It was good coverage. So it was good to I see. Saw, um, looking at the times, it was the top 16 women all went sub nine, which is, you know, by far one of the fastest days out there. But I think you can attribute some of it to conditions. Like you said, Clint, it wasn't super windy, but the level of professionalism and just the level of performance is, yeah, it's improving in the women's field for sure. And I think in the past where a lot of people used to blow up in Kona, everyone's just their level of professionalism sort of ticking all those boxes, making sure things, less things go wrong. Um, it's just leading to more more racing, like you say, close performances. And, yeah, what's ended up as 16 women going sub nine. Yeah, on it, that day. Yeah, it was very impressive. And, yeah, I, like previously when people would go there, it could be very much a guessing game, but the amount of, tools we have at our disposal now to know you know how close to our limits we are make it a lot easier or not easier a lot um a lower chance of blowing up in thank general you. yes yeah. <laughs> the one thing i did want to mention i'd love to see this change i know it's really hard but i think it will change in years to come as drones get better is i'd love to see more drone footage of athletes and far less of motorbikes filming alongside athletes it doesn't, I don't think people realize how much advantage there is having a motorbike alongside you. It doesn't need to be in front. I've only ridden to the front of Kona once, but I was shocked at how much my watts could drop to set, to hold the same speed with the, with the media just in there filming me. So I think that's something that will open up the race in future years. It'll open up for those ladies that don't make that front swim or um, potentially just want to race their own race all day and, and make it a, a, a complete time trial so i think that's was, going to change in time but yeah there was that it was very like that was one of the big issues in the pro briefing um as soon as jimmy riccatello opened it up to the the crowd that was uh, the, the athletes they were straight away onto very much that are the motorbikes going to stay out of the way are we going to get a fair race and also um interesting laura phillip and then her coach philip c really went hard at the issue of the penalties with the bottles over there because she got a penalty last year oh, really? yeah it got really it actually got really heated because they never got an explanation as to why and then they said it would be the same this year and several of the uh, several of the athletes during the race on the coverage bottles shot out of their bikes and it was kind of race referees there kind of just turning a blind eye but, Which they um, should. They yeah, should. they very much they should, should because if yeah. they don't, if they're not going to fix the issue of giving little bottles yeah. out on course, then they can't they can't hand out penalties like that. But yeah, it was it was a real contentious issue in the in the pro briefing as to they wanted a fair race and watching the coverage early on, it it's very hard when there's you know five or six or seven in a group and they're filming the first person next to them on a motorbike there's going to be some benefit for the people behind because of how much the air is moving. And further to what you said, Reedy, like back in the day, oh, like when the, when the men's race is up the road, um, there was always a heap, like the, the lead car, then all the motorbikes, all the media. And 
unfairly the the women wouldn't get as much coverage but this year they got a lot more coverage and so it's it's definitely the, something that they need to work out a way to make it completely fair because if they're going to stick with women only there it's like almost goes to the itu stuff right where you've got to make the front pack otherwise or, or, be, have... or be the lead swimmer and ensure yeah. you're getting heaps of coverage yeah 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 yep. um it's always been a part of the game i think everyone knows where where it's at so like it's you know, you know, like Lionel said to me years ago when I was complaining about it, he said, just learn to swim better. <laughs> I said, I love that. How's that working out for you now? Yeah, 15 it's been, years later. It's been 10 years and you, <laughs> you're still missing out on, like, I, I think he's one of the best of all time. Don't get me wrong, but I think he would have even more results with a totally fair race. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll probably try and wrap up pretty soon we'll wrap up on Kona there because I really want to try and talk more to Liz because we might not have the pleasure of having you on too often Liz um but one question before we go separate locations should it continue or would you prefer it was changed back to one uh one spot one sentence answer Clint oh one sentence um this got spitballed around the dinner table and coffee shops over there the whole time um I'm back. I, I think it needs to be in one location just because the crowds at certain points in the day, it was, it was considerably down. I just don't feel like the atmosphere was there and I don't feel like it's a genuine world champs. I feel like Ironman keeps saying that it's, it's to grow the sport, but I think it's very short-sighted what they're doing because it used to be a five or 10 year goal to get to the world champs. And it was absolutely the pinnacle of the sport, which kept people in the sport. And what they're doing now, it's like people can basically go one and done, get out of the sport. Yep. Good point. Liz, what are your thoughts? Good one word, Clint. Yeah. <laughs> I said one sentence, so he's not yeah. in too much trouble. I didn't, I didn't take a breath. So. <laughs> I'm going to keep it to one sentence. I liked uh, the separate locations for the pros. Did not like it for the age groupers. Yep. Good, good one. Potential solution there along those, those lines. Uh, Danny? I actually like last year, to be honest, as a spectator only, being able to watch Kona two twice in like two or three days. But obviously we all know that's that's probably never going to go back to that. So pretty much what you said, Clint, one day would be great. Liz, um, I mentioned last episode we're going to dive a bit more into your career because um, it is one of the most illustrious careers of any Australian female triathlete, for sure. In fact, any female triathlete. In the world. So, Liz, um, you wrapped up how many? Five years ago now. Um, Clint. Oh, can I kick this off? Yeah, I do want to kick this off. First up, I want to know how Glenn proposed to you and why were you so angry? <laughs> what? What sort of question is that? What do you mean? I wasn't angry. <laughs> Glenn made it. Glenn made, out, Glenn made out that you were so committed to training and recovery that you were just pissed off that he made you ride a bike on your recovery day. <laughs> Sorry, right. I, um, yeah, it was, I was training in Switzerland and it had been a training camp with other people and then everyone else had left and I had these last five hard days of training to do all on my own. And when I say all on my own, I had Glenn with me and he was really, really committed to helping me. And so I trained really hard and I had this one day off and Glenn was like, let's go for an easy spin. Mm. And I'm like, uh, really? Um, and part of me is recognizing that, you know, he's here for me and this is what he wants to do as well. So I'm like, okay. And then the easy spin, he was like, let's just go up this mountain. Mm. And so, you know, what you like at the end of a big training block, you know, you're hanging for your, your days off and he starts to be like, let's ride up this mountain. And I'm like, really and I just like stopped talking you know when you're that tired and just grinding up a hill so I wasn't angry I was just a bit confused <laughs> now, now I've got the um the explanation I'm on your side he should have never done that he should have read the room a bit better and done it in a different way so. <laughs> <laughs> on the couch just yeah. in your hotel room yeah <laughs> but in the end it was all worth it it was from the top of this mountain overlooking uh, Valley de Joux is an area in Switzerland that I've trained quite, for quite a few years as an ITU athlete and top of this mountain overlooks the whole lake. Um, yeah, sort of mountains all around and yeah, you could only get that view from riding to the top and we didn't have a car at that point. So 
wrote on up big romance big romantic you (laughs) (laughs) so yeah maybe i was a little angry (laughs) liz um obviously i mean reedy said it right you're you're clearly one of the the best female athletes that i think we've had in the sport um can you just take us back in uh, to your junior years and how you got into triathlon and, and maybe why oh okay yeah going way back um did surf club as a kid and a bit of little athletics so sort of swam and ran as a little kid but then I actually did my first try at age 13 mm. and I was already getting decent results in surf club and athletics but when I came to triathlon I just started winning straight away and I guess my 13-year-old ego liked that. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just sort of was spurred on and soon triathlon became my main sport. And, yeah, so definitely was a bit of a lifetime triathlete um, racing from age 13, retiring at age 38. So, yeah, had 25, 25 years of racing. Um, yeah, so did the sort of junior circuit, junior elites, as it was called, a few junior world championships, um, and then turned pro when I was 20. Um, moved from Perth to the Gold Coast, trained under Cole Stewart initially, and then, yeah, I've had a bunch of other coaches, Sean Stevens, Brett Sutton, um, Ben Bright, uh, Matt Steinmetz. So I've had a bunch of different coaches through my triathlon career and other coaches as well, like Dennis Cottrell on the Gold Coast for swimming and some run coaches along the way as well. So, yeah, 25 years in a nutshell. <laughs> Do you find that every one of those coaches you've had, Liz, you take the things that you benefited most out of into your coaching? Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think as I got older as an athlete, potentially got harder to coach because I had all these things that I'd learned along the way that I knew worked for me. and as we all know as coaches that sort of training is very personalized and what works for one athlete isn't going to work for the other. And I'd worked a lot of this out for myself. So my coach in my final years of Ironman racing was Matt Steinmetz. And it was a lot of me being like, well, I like to, I like this swim squad on these days. And I like this run squad on these days. Um, and I'm not going to break from the long ride on this day and this day. And so work with that. <laughs> and so, um, would he just pick, he just fill in the gaps and then you guys had a bit of a like, um, you know, a dialogue about it weekly or whenever to make sure that it was as efficient as possible? Yeah, 100%. And um, I guess, yeah, Reedy, you probably got to this point in your career too. It's, yeah, it was almost, a, we were both coaching myself and um, there was aspects that Matt knew a lot more about than me, um, aerodynamics, equipment, that sort of things. Um, bike sessions yeah he had some really great ideas and I came to Matt in my Ironman career uh, for my Ironman career for my whole Ironman career actually so you know the requirements there are quite different from the ITU training there's a lot of crossover um, of course but yeah there was definitely some areas that that he brought to the table and yeah so it was a bit of a combination. You you raise a good point I think it's easier and I if I'm going to take on a young talent I'd much prefer that than a very well-established pro because of that reason. I think you can take those years to work out what works best for them and shape them. And But if you take on an established pro, they do have a lot of preconceived ideas and sometimes it's um, things that you're not going to be able to change and, and and you probably shouldn't change. And sometimes they are things that you sh- that should be changed as they've become an older athlete, but it's a really hard battle to get them to do that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that, how how resilient uh, resistant you were to sort of letting someone take the full reins. Cause I was very much the same. Um, talk me through, like, I don't want to take over Jack's show because I think he does a great job at asking details about the training, but I think people would be interested about the difference between your biggest ITU training week. So how, how the week was structured compared to an Ironman training week, what would be sort of like, I don't know, one or one to three sort of key differences between those training weeks to, achieve you know the highest level that you did in both different uh styles of triathlon the differences um oh okay one first first and foremost i would say that stands out is run intensity so for me and i think for a lot of athletes run intensity is probably what takes its biggest toll um both like systemically and sort of injury wise when in itu days and especially when i was racing my best that would have been four at least four sessions a week where I'm running over threshold 
um, and potentially a, a lot faster than threshold. So just a lot of run intensity in the program, which, you know, takes away from other areas of your training um, versus when I went to Ironman, I dropped a lot of that intensity out of my run to, I guess, not just to get more volume in, but just to be able to get more quality into my bike sessions. Um, yeah. So just the run intensity dropout, um, a lot more hours on the bike is an obvious one. You know, like I'm not stating anything that yeah. most people probably don't know here. Um, so yeah, more bike hours. And to be honest, a lot of it just zone two long rides, just time in the saddle for Ironman. So um, just to get specific on that, how many hours on the bike sort of a week in a typical training Ironman training block compared to a ITU? Um, yeah, good one. So let's see, on, in ITU, probably did three three-hour rides a week plus two one-hour trainer sessions. So what are we there, 11 hours a week? Yep. And in an Ironman block, probably be like two five or six hour rides a week and then another yeah. two to three and a couple of trainer rides too so you're up around 20 hours almost some weeks yeah maybe yeah above 15 yep like right in the middle midst of those training blocks so yeah like that's an extra four hours a week on the bike um what well, in regards to swimming Liz, like with the ITU stuff, then moving to Ironman, did you change intensity much or did you like in, in the specific training sessions or was it a bit like you just enjoyed the the solid swim squads often because of the environment you're in, so you stayed in the squads? A bit of that, yeah. I, um, I think there's this sort of idea with swimming that Oh, I'd always just noticed it that the best swimmers in the sport actually swam the most. Like I think if you look at Josh Amberger or back in my day, it was Jodie Swallow and you looked at the swim training they were doing, they were always actually swimming the hardest and swimming the most. And there's a reason and probably Lucy now. Mm -hmm. um, and like I was aware when I changed to Ironman, swim was my strength. I Most of the Ironmans I did, I, I would lead out and um, yeah, that was just the way I raced. And I wanted to maintain that. And although I did, drop a bit of swim intensity I still kept um squad sessions just not as regularly so I, I think for me with Ironman training I'd do Monday Friday big squad sessions when I was on the Gold Coast it'd be in Dennis Cottrell's squad and they'd be still five to six kilometer hard squad sessions and like you say I loved the environment I loved what it got out of me training in a squad um just swimming harder than I would would on my own Whereas ITU days, there'd be at least three or four of those a week. So, yeah, but that's just kind of all that energy going there versus me having to put it into bike or longer runs. Yeah, if, you, if you were trying to do three or four really solid swim sessions a week and then do, what, 15 to 20 hours of riding a week, something's got to give, right? And so yeah. you get, you'd probably get out on the bike some days and get three hours from home and realise that, probably shouldn't have swum so hard this morning yeah. to try and mm -hmm. get home. So it's, um, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's, mm. um, Liz, you mentioned as well with the ITU training um, that you were doing, was it four threshold sessions typically in a week? Is that, that's during the season, in the off season, would that intensity drop or are ITU people just sending it every week all year round? Oh, like off season lasted for about, a month to six yeah. weeks <laughs> and then it would actually I think my training more resembled Ironman training and then I'd go back to the intensity um but yeah to be honest there was a lot of the year that was very intense um and I like through one of my coaches I sort of learned that I got the most out of myself from doing 40 weeks a year of hard training like what well, no brainer but <laughs> just being able to manage all the aspects to be able to get 40 hard weeks out of yourself um is a a balance but yeah so not not a lot of off season but when it was off season for me especially it was I'd get to my final race of the year um and just I wouldn't train for a month <laughs> which is pretty <laughs> I, unusual in a lot of pro athletes I'd be really deconditioned after a month off but yeah <laughs> yeah which I think is a lot of us struggle to do it because we're all mental cases to take the time off but I think the athletes that do take the time off um think it's a good good way to do it actually fully decompress and let your body properly heal um and then i think people also need to realize that you would 
you were not like people thinking, oh, now I need to do four threshold sessions. I want to get good at Olympic distance. You can only do as much training as you can absorb, right? And your recovery outside of those sessions, I'm assuming fairly well optimized. Like you, you didn't have a, you know, you weren't working while you're doing any of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I'm thinking, talking about sort of in the earlier part of my ITU career where I, I sort of had a purple patch of, um, I don't know, five years where I was uninjured and I was able to handle that intensity on the run. And like you say, wasn't working. Training was my life and I'd ice bath after hard runs and then I'd nap after morning sessions before my afternoon. So yeah, like that ultimate pro lifestyle. Um, I got, I became more injury prone later in my career and I didn't run as hard as often um, or didn't run hard as often. And then Ironman training, I think, when I went to the Ironman distance sort of in my early thirties, I had this string of injuries and was kind of wondering, Oh, am I, is my body going to be able to handle the, the sort of duration, the long runs, whatnot. But it turned out that it did fine. And it was probably the intensity that was breaking mm. over and over. So yeah, look, I, over a 20, it was an 18 year pro career and things changed a lot within that, but um, there was definitely a period of very pro- professional whole life was triathlon and yeah, absolutely. You can optimize. Do you look at that period, like when you went to Ironman and, and wish, oh, I wish I kind of dabbled a little bit earlier or is there like no regrets? Oh, I've, I've thought about this quite often. I've had this question before, before, so have thought back about it. And I think, as a kid growing up, I always wanted to be an Olympian. So I had this goal of going to the Olympics and my ITU career, I never made it to the games. I got really close. I was selected as first reserve both uh, two times. And if I hadn't, there is an element, Clint, yes, that, oh, I wish I'd gone to Ironman four years earlier, um, had four more years in the sport, you know, the developing the, where Ironman was at that point and sort of how quickly I came in and had good results. I'm like, you know, what could have been? What could I have got? What could have happened at Kona um, or even over 70.3 world champs distance, which I never raced. I never raced that race. Um, so a bit of what if, but then ultimately my, my just sort of answer comes back to no, I don't regret it because I had this goal of going to the Olympics, although I fell short, I sort of, I won't, I won't die wondering. Um, I gave everything to that and, it formed me as an athlete. It sort of created, I guess, the resilient person I was when I came to IMM. And speaking about the Olympics, I think you're probably the best ITU athlete of, <laughs> to not go to the Olympics. Uh, obviously, it would have been complete heartbreak each time. I won't go into it too deeply because I think um, you've probably talked about it a lot before. But if is is there one change to the system that you would, would have liked to have made or like if you could change anything now, is there one change you'd make so that it does end up potentially a, a system that could be better in your opinion and, and people like you don't fall through the cracks? Oh, you're talking about the whole Olympic selection system? Yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I don't love the team racing for the Olympic Games. I like that the best athletes get to go and, and that was ultimately sort of what, stopped me from getting to the games was the whole domestic approach so yeah look just given it is such an achievement and you know what this lifelong goal for a lot of people yeah um yeah I just would like to see the best athletes there there's you know I know there's reasons for domestics and there's money on medals and whatnot for federations so I I understand both sides but personally I'd prefer to see the best athletes so you think that like you know how like the U.S marathon they just have the u.s marathon trials and it's like you turn up you finish first or second you're going do you think that would be the right answer or is it like i don't know what the answer is but i just think that they need to work on it more oh yeah look um this is such an in-depth topic and i've got a good friend who's on the triathlon australia selection board and when we talk it you end up talking circles and (laughs) you know you want the best athletes there but if they don't perform at the selection day is there a way to get them in the team still um or are we just focused on medals and if so if yeah sorry i don't i don't have a straight answer to that it's a hard one i'd like to see the best athletes there i know there's reasons to have 
teams, but yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to me how much, you know, you've lived in this sport for a long time. It would have consumed you. And yet I'm always amazed at how much your husband, Glenn, who's, I don't, don't believe he's ever raced triathlon, absolutely loves triathlon and talking triathlon. Is it at the, on the home front, is it you telling him to stop talking about triathlon sometimes or is, or do you still manage to talk about it a fair bit? <laughs> Don't believe he's ever done a triathlon. Um, can confirm he has never done a triathlon. There's <laughs> 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 been a little bit of talk about it. Um, he does like to talk triathlon, but has probably clocked that I'm not always the person. <laughs> so, you know, like I have my methods. I just stop responding. I change the subject. I engage the child. <laughs> um, and I think a bit of that. And occasionally we do, for sure. Um, I'm obviously really still interested, but maybe we're interested about different topics at times and or just not all day, every day. But then what does happen is if someone walks into our house that's triathlon, you know, is into triathlon then they often get bombarded because he hasn't been getting me <laughs> i couldn't yeah. work out why reedy didn't want to come to hawaii this year and i'm just <laughs> spending two days in a household with glenn and i just talking triathlon the whole time i thought to myself <laughs> that's probably the answer <laughs> the last one i think i think just the last year or two of your career i think you raced for was it two more years once you had your first child um how it must have been a very tough experience from having going from always fully focusing on triathlon and recovery to suddenly having to make these huge compromises. You know, for myself coming from an age group background, my life was always compromised with triathlon. I had a couple of years where it was like, oh, I'm a full-time pro. How good's this? But to have that for 15 to 20 years and then shift into mothering, was it a real struggle? Um, in some aspects it was, but I also, I just had a plan in my head and I knew there was an, an end date. So I had Marley, um, in June of 2017, and then I retired in October of 2018. So I kind of knew it was this short time frame, and it wasn't forever. And yeah, like it was hard being a new mom and trying to race and train. And as you say, not being able to do it to the level I had done before. Um, but for me, there was other aspects I got just, I got a sacral stress fracture um, and then tore a calf multiple times and it was a bit like, why am I still doing this? Um, so mentally, I think knowing there was this end date, um, like I'd sort of had it all planned out, that helped, um, not knowing that this was forever going to be this difficult. Um, but, yeah, that physically, both what pregnancy and birth sort of did to my body and the just not having the recovery, Um was hard. <laughs> mm. Well, Liz, thank you so much for coming on for the second time. Uh, I hope it's not the last, but I understand if it is. We will let you go because I know you've got got to get off to more important things in life. Um, we're going to hang on the line after you go, but thanks so much. And thank um, so much. it was, yeah, I hope we can get you back on because you are obviously a wealth of knowledge and I think brings a different perspective just coming from a female racing perspective as well that none of us can really um we, we've got our experience but not the same level of course that you do so thanks so much again oh thank you you're doing a great job <laughs> see ya see you Liz. Bye. Bye. well we haven't done a uh, study in a while i thought we should probably go through one a shit or hit study um clint run us through one that you've cherry picked it was well, very briefly, it's basically, do we need a cool down for and after? Or this was more so after exercise, a review on effects on performance, injuries, and long-term adaptive responses from doing a warm down. Um, thoughts, ready? So I had this conversation with my athlete who was stressing out that sometimes I didn't give him a warm down for his session. Um and I had to point out that basically this study concluded that there is no benefit, no recovery benefit to actually including a warm down in your training when they looked at a bunch of different recovery metrics. And uh, the interesting thing about this is people almost feel 
like they panic if they don't do a warm down. Like, oh, am I am I hurting what I've just done in that session? For most of us doing triathlon sessions, I mean, your level of lactate for starters is not that high, even when you're working, you know, at threshold or it's you're not finishing a 200 meter swim event or and then have you know an hour between it to another event. Um, I'm not. I do. Let me get this straight. I, I do really like warm downs, but not for the recovery benefit. I like them because it can be a nice way for athletes to have some social time after getting some hard work done in the session. So it just makes the enjoyment of the session a, a little bit nicer. I also just love easy aerobic volume in general. So if an athlete, it's an easy way to top up some of the, the, the aerobic volume that they get throughout the week without it seeming as mundane as, oh, I've got another four-hour ride today. So instead there might be a 45-minute spin down if they're outside on the bike and it's just a way to bring that overall aerobic volume up. But if you are strapped for time and you have to cut the warm down, don't stress that it's not going to it's not going to affect your recovery. It might just affect your overall fitness if you did that over a long period of time because you're missing out on that aerobic volume. Yeah, um, couldn't have even said it closer as well as that, mate. But I, I would say the social aspect, especially in, in a group scenario like a lot of us do the sport because you're, you're surrounded by positive people and people you want to hang out with right so if you're you turn up to training and it's just heavy breathing and hard work the whole time you don't actually get a chance to chat about things pre and post specifics then um you may not enjoy your training as much as possible so um yeah i i love putting it in there for the social side of things in groups um group settings and then also yeah uh, exactly what you said you don't have to stress if it doesn't if, if you can't fit it in you do the specifics and you can you can pull up you don't need to slowly wind down after every single session danny no it's any any comments we've left in um some of the guys we coach at the moment you know particularly the time constrained people who get up and have you know an hour 15 max in the morning before they get get ready to go to work, deal with kids and stuff. It's always warm-up's pretty important, yeah. um, main session, and then, you know, note, cut the warm-down or cut the cool-down if needed sort of thing for sure. So Yeah, for sure. So hit or shit, Reid? Oh, I think it's a hit. I, I was – we probably didn't give enough details around the study for people to go and find it, but just just trust us. It's a hit. <laughs> we can put the link we can put, put the link, link in, yeah, the, yeah. in the bio <laughs> yeah i agree it was a hit uh danny any fan questions we should work through we have none good all <laughs> right that's it we're done see you later <laughs> we're gonna Thanks, finish guys. there no, that was good <laughs>